Now we launch into a southern campaign. So now he moves down to this part of Lachish and Hebron and Eglon and all this kind of stuff. And he's going to go after those kings. Basically in chapter 10, verse 28, we read of all these cities. And once again, it's, he just lists it. They went to this city and they conquered it. They went to this city and they conquered it. But then the one thing that is getting repeated over and over again is they, that they wiped everybody out. And so two things you keep seeing repeated is like in verse 32, Yahweh handed Lachish over to them. That gets repeated. That Yahweh is behind this victory is very important. And the other thing is getting repeated over and over again is in verse 32, at the very end of it, it says, they put to the sword all who live there just as they had done to the previous city. And so what you see here is that partnership. In this southern campaign, God's not going into a lot of detail because he doesn't need to anymore. By now you've seen what happens when they're faithful. They defeat cities like Jericho. They defeat coalitions like the five Amorite kings. And we've seen what happens when they're not obedient. They get defeated in the city of Ai because of Achan's sin. But we've also seen that when they repent and deal with that sin, God will rejoin them again and give them great victories again without hesitation and without epicness. And so now the narrator has clearly established that point. He doesn't need to give you a narrative anymore. So we're pretty much done with the narrative. Now it's just conquer, 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 conquer. Because you already know what's happening. And But the one thing the narrator keeps repeating is, Yahweh is faithful to them to give them this city. And they are faithful to Yahweh to do everything that he commanded to this city. And that's where you see this partnership. And notice that when... Yahweh is faithful, which he always is, but then they are faithful in return. It's smooth. It's just defeat, 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 defeat. And what the book of Joshua is trying to show here is this is what God intended. God intended you to go to him immediately when there's problems. God intended for you to trust him without hesitation. God commanded, intended for you to obey everything as he had commanded. And when you do that, he shows up and does amazing things that most of the time you don't have to do anything. When we get to the book of Judges, you're going to find out most of the time the judges don't do anything. Once they demonstrate faith, God just does everything. And this is the partnership that Yahweh is looking for. Your faith, your obedience, and he responds with great miraculous defeats over whatever problem, whatever enemy, whatever trial you think you're facing. And so we see that in this section of just defeat, defeat, defeat. At the end of chapter 10, verse 40, it says, Joshua defeated the whole land, including the hill country, the Negev, the lower lands, the slopes, and all their kings. He left no survivors. He annihilated everything that breathed, just as Yahweh God of Israel had commanded. Joshua conquered the area between Kadesh Barnea and Gaza and the whole region of Goshen and all the way to Gibeon. And Joshua captured in one campaign all these kings and their lands for Yahweh God of Israel fought for Israel. And then Joshua and all of Israel returned to the camp of Gilgah. In the first campaign, we see that he is conquering everything from Gibeon all the way up to Shechem, this whole area. Now we've learned that he's conquered everything from Beersheba all the way up to Gibeon and all the way to Gaza, which means he only goes to this yellow part. And Philistia is there. He's basically conquered the south. Now, Beersheba is the most southern city 
in the land of Canaan. So once he's conquered Beersheba, that means he owns everything from the south all the way up to the central part of Israel. But he does, the one thing he's not going to conquer is the Jebusites in Jerusalem and Philistia. That's one thing that he never conquers. But remember, not because he wasn't faithful, but because God tells him to stop so the next generation has something to do. So in chapter 11, verse 1, we now read about the northern campaign. So now he moves up here above the Canaanites around the Sea of Galilee. And so around the Sea of Galilee, he's going to be again in campaign there as well. He begins to list those kings as well. Basically, king defeated, king defeated, king defeated. And he keeps on going and listing this. One of the cities he first starts with is, in verse 1, it says, When the king Jabin of Hazor heard the news, he organized a coalition as well. And the king of Hazor is one of the most powerful cities in all of Israel. Jericho was up there. Jerusalem is up there. But in the far as the north goes, Hazor, all the way up here, is a very, very, very powerful city. And it basically was a city that covered about 170 acres. And the acre is about, what is it, like 48,000 feet, something like that. Any interesting thing, the original word for acre was actually yoke. And if you, don't, if you want to know where they, how, how did they determine an acre was like 48,000 square feet? The acre comes from the word yoke, and it was basically the amount of land that two cattle yoked together could plow in one day. And that becomes the determination for an acre. And so that's what an acre is. Now, granted, different animals will move at different paces based on the hot heat of the day and how much they've eaten, how old they are. But on average, they knew that two cattle yoked together could graze this much land or plow this much land a day, and that became a yoke, which later was renamed acre. So it's a little side note. Hazor controls a lot, and we think the population was around 30,000 to 40,000 people too. That is huge in the ancient world. That is a booming giant city. For us, we think that's not that big of a city, but it is in the ancient world. It is in the ancient world. So now they're pretty much going up against one of their greatest (laughs) obstacles. And this could be pretty freaky to them. So God commands them to go up there, and this time he actually commands them to burn everything down, just like Jericho, because it was their first fruits offering to God, and Ai, because they sinned, and they had to burn the city as um, repentance, he now commands them to burn all of Hazor and give everything to Yahweh. And I think it's another one of those things. It's like, okay, you've had success in the central campaign, and you've had success in the southern campaign, and all these campaigns are about 14 years. So we're looking at the last 14 years of this campaign. So in one sense, it's like you list defeat, 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 and you're like, wow, this is all happening within weeks. But then you learn later it's 14 years, and you're like, wow, this is actually probably was a little bit more involved when the narrator's mentioned. And the narrator's not trying to deceive you. He makes it very clear that it was a long ordeal, but at the same time, the fact that he's listing it so matter-of-factly is showing that ultimately in the end, God is giving them the victory. There's no real setbacks. It's going to take a long time to conquer city after city. I mean, you just don't go, like, attack people day after day after day after day. And they got to grow crops and that kind of stuff and keep their families alive. And most of the time, people fought in the springtime, too. We get this idea that the ordeal. So Hazor is at the very end. And the question might be, are they still obedient? Are they still faithful? 
Hazor might be another one of those first fruits offering to God. You're going to offer this to me, and it's going to be another test of your faithfulness to me. Now that you've been getting and getting and getting, it's like giving a kid a whole bunch of candy and then asking them to share like the 12th piece, and they're like, no, no, I want more. I'm on a roll here. The reality is he might be saying, can you offer this up? Are you willing to stop taking an offer to me again? Are you willing to obey me when I change up the rules a little bit? And Moses showed that he couldn't. Because remember when Moses told to strike the rock, the water produced water. And when he was told to speak to the rock years later, he ended up striking again because he went to what worked last time rather than what God said this time. And so Hazor might be one of those God switching it up on them to see, are you going to obey what I'm saying? Or are you just going to do what you've always been doing and what's always been working? So he commands them to burn all of Hazor. And he tells them to hamstring the horses. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. We know it's something with cutting the ligaments in the back. And for all you horse lovers, I'm sorry. But what we do know is that it seems to be that you're not killing the horse or just crippling it so it like suffers and dies, because that's not who Yahweh is. It's that you're cutting it in such a way that it won't be able to like run and fight in battle anymore. But it's still, but once it heals, it will be able to still work the fields and be a productive animal and that kind of stuff. So it doesn't be like in movies in Hollywood, you see them just slicing the legs of the horses and they go down and the person goes down. And, but it seems to be more of a crippling it from being a war horse, but not a mutilation or a crippling it for life where it just suffers and dies from starvation because it can't walk anymore. And so he's commanding them to not allow these to be war horses anymore. Now, you think, why, why is that important? Like, okay, that's kind of random, God. Well, one of the reasons that we don't see this in these other cities is because you don't have horses. This is the hill country. And horses are absolutely useless in hill country. That's where you want donkeys. And donkeys are more able to traverse the hills and the valleys and all that kind of stuff. But now we're getting up here in more flat territory. Horses can be more useful in flatter terrain. And so now we've probably been encountering horses for the first time ever. The other time we're going to encounter horses in the book of Judges when they start going against Philistia, because that's flatter too. We're going to talk about this a lot more when we get to Samuel. But in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, God gives the requirements for a king. And one of the requirements is that they're not allowed to go to Egypt and get horses and collect them and bring them back. And God's not really, the point isn't like, oh, I don't want you to have horses. One of the major points is I don't want you to go back to Egypt. But the other point is they're not allowed to amass military technology. Now, I know we're used to technology being computers and that kind of stuff, but the word technology basically just means anything that you've built to aid you beyond your own physical body's capabilities. So the wheel is technology. A stick with a metal blade at the end is technology. It's not your body doing it, so to speak, anymore. It's something that's aiding your body. So they're not allowed to have any military technology at all. They're not allowed to have horses. They're not allowed to have chariots. They're not allowed to have any massive weapons. If, if God was giving this rule to Israel today, they wouldn't be allowed to have helicopters, airplanes, aircraft carriers, any of that kind of stuff. All they would be allowed to have is just basic weapons in their own body. And God commands this because he makes it very clear, I am going to be your horse and chariot. And later when we get to Samuel, 
God is going to specifically call the prophet his horse and chariot. The prophet is actually going to be the military technological advancement of Israel. And that he is going to become their their technology, so to speak, because he's going to link them to God, and he's going to be able to be the one who brings in the angels. And if you remember the story of Elijah, where he says, open his eyes up so you can see, and Elijah's commanding the heavenly host of God's army because he is the horse and chariot of Israel. And then when Elijah's taken away, Elisha says the horse and chariot of God has come for him. And so the idea is that God is their horse and chariot. What God is doing here is he's remaining consistent. He's saying you're not allowed to just take these horses because you're probably going to turn them into war animals and you're going to trust that technology instead of me. But at the same time, these horses are my creation who I love. And so you're not allowed to just kill them. And so basically what he's doing is saying hamstring them. And this removes the temptation for using them as weapons, but it still allows the horse to be useful in any farm kind of a way. This is a very significant thing because God has changed the rules a lot. They're encountering new animals they've never encountered before. And I don't mean they've never seen a horse, but I mean in this particular moment. And they're now commanded to do something different with the city. And when they go to Hazor, they do just as Yahweh commanded. And that's important. God changed the rules up on them, so to speak, and I mean that for just lack of a better phrase. And they obeyed. Verse 10, At that time Joshua turned, captured Hazor, struck down its king with the sword, from, for Hazor was at that time the leader of all these kingdoms. Then they annihilated everyone who lived there with the sword, and no one who was breathed remained and burned Hazor. And Joshua captured all these cities and the kings and annihilated them. And so he destroyed them all, and then that is the end of the northern campaign. So basically they have all this stuff up here. This reddish-pinkish color here is basically everything they conquer. And this is the book of Joshua ends with them conquering this land. And like I mentioned before, it's not because they're not faithful. It's not because God says, well, that's enough. I've changed my mind. It's because he's specifically going to later say, I want something for the next generation to conquer so that they won't just have it handed to them. And God makes it very clear, you're not just allowed to hand the next generation this massive thing. They have to work for it. And we know what happens when people don't work for things. And there's nothing wrong with, it's not that you have to work for everything. There's no point in starting all over every generation. It's not like you can't hand your kids anything. But it's that when you hand them everything and they work for nothing. Because they are going to be handed this. They're going to be handed the most powerful, greatest cities that are fortified. Their heads are cut off. The power of Canaan has been stripped out. So they are being handed something. But there is a sense that God says, but they still need to work for something because they need to appreciate. One, they need to appreciate what they have. And two, they need a chance to demonstrate their faithfulness to God as well. That's very important to understand. This is the end of those defeats, those campaigns. Chapter 11, verse 21, it says, At that time Joshua attacked and eliminated the Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron, Debir, Anab, and all the hill country of Judah and Israel. Joshua annihilated them in their cities. No Anakites were left in Israelite territory, though some remained in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. 
And Joshua conquered the whole land just as Yahweh had promised Moses. And he assigned Israel their tribal portions, and the land was free of war. Now, this is important. It's interesting at the very end, God summarizes. And one of the last things he says about the campaign is, Joshua defeated the Anakites. Now, who were the Anakites? You remember? They were the giants. Now, remember giants, we mean like giants who were like seven, eight foot tall, which is, we, there, there's a guy on record in America from the 1800s, eight foot tall, something, eight foot six or eight foot five, something like that. We don't mean like fee-fi-fo-thumb giant. The reality is there, but still, you have, you have to understand the average height of an Israelite male during this time period is five foot three. Yes. It's only been since like post like industrial revolution, really, that height is starting to increase in the world. The reality is, if you're a five foot three, I mean, if you've ever seen some of those basketball players, and then even at like almost six foot tall, which is what most men are here, is almost six or maybe a little over, if you stand up to some of those basketball players, you're going to feel like they're a giant. And then you're like at five foot three, it's, and they're militarily oriented with swords and weapons and bows and arrows, and you're coming in from the wilderness with like farm tools, it's going to be scary. So the reality is, these are the Anakites. They said, we saw giants in the land, and then when they sent the 12 spies, and we can't take them. They're going to kill our children. And now God summarizes the whole campaign and says, oh yeah, by the way, you remember those Anakites? Joshua defeated them. And then other than the few that are here in Philistia, Gaza and Gath and Ekron and Ashdod, but that's because God told them not to go any further yet, they're all destroyed. And so the very thing that the, the Israelites made such a big deal out of, or over a chapter in the book of Numbers, chapter 14, God just summarizes in two sentences, they destroyed them, they defeated them. And then when we get to Caleb, you're going to see a, a more zoomed-in image of how they defeated them. And that's coming a little bit later. Now, here's what's interesting. Verse 23, Joshua conquered the whole land just as Yahweh had promised Moses, and he assigned Israel its land portions. This is the first time in the Bible that this land is called Israel. They have been called Israelites. But this is the first time that this land has been called Israel. And what God is making, the point is, is that he has faithfully honored his promises. Back in chapter 12 of Genesis, when he says, Go, Abram, to a land that I will show you, and I will give it to you, make you into a great nation. I will personally bless you and curse those who curse you, and so that you can be a blessing to the world. And then in the, he gets there, and he stands in Shechem right here, and God says, look around. All this is the land I'm going to give to you. And Abram died without seeing the land given to him. Isaac died without seeing the land. Jacob died without seeing the land. The 12 sons died without seeing the land. They were taken to Egypt. They spent 400 years there. They came to the wilderness. Moses died without really taking the land. And now God says, they have Israel. They have Israel. And then now he begins to divvy up the land allotments. What God is saying is, I have honored my promise. 
that I made to Abraham all those years ago. So in chapter 12, Yahweh summarizes this all up by listing all the cities, the major cities. And so basically he talks about these different kings that are defeated. He talks about the past kings from the book of Numbers, Og and Sihon. And then he goes into the, the conquest of Joshua in verse 9. He says the king of Jericho won. The king of Ai won. And he just goes one, 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 as in one king defeated. And he lists it. Now remember what I mentioned before when we were talking about the extermination of the Canaanites. The, 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 the defeats are not graphic. Okay, the, the, the most graphic that they get is that they killed the kings, they hung their bodies up for a few hours, they took them down, and they piled rocks on them. But then when it finally talks about it, just as they defeat this city, and they defeat this city, and they burned everything, and they killed people, these are just facts. These are, these are factual accounts of what happened. Just killed, annihilated, destroyed. Kill, annihilated, destroyed. That's it. And then when God finally lists it, this is listed in the same way that pharaohs would list out their conquering and defeats of the Assyrians, the empire, and that kind of stuff. And it's all factual. And this is very important for you to understand because there is no ancient writing in the entire world that is like this. When you read the accounts of the Assyrian kings like Darius and Tiglath, Pilzar, and Sargon, and you read the accounts of the Babylonians like Nebuchadnezzar, and all these guys, and you read the Canaanites and this stuff, they talk about skinning people alive, cutting their heads off, stacking them up, wearing them around their necks and belts, like necklaces and belts, carrying them as flags and banners to the next city to strike them with fear. They talk about how awesome they are and how amazing they are that they can do this to people's bodies and nobody else can. And they talk about mutilating people and ripping pregnant women open, all this kind of stuff. And it's graphic. And they're glorying in it. And they're praising. They're talking about how awesome that they are that they do these kind of things. And it's sickening. And then you get to the biblical account, another ancient writing, and just says, King won. King won. King won. King won. You need to understand this because this is very different. Even though God is killing them as a punishment for their sin, remember, their sin has gone on for uh, four. 100, 700, 800 plus years. And God has been incredibly patient for it with them. And when he finally comes to defeating them, he doesn't glorify in it because these are still his children. This is still the image that he created and placed in the garden and said, I want to partner with you. And so he's not taking any satisfaction or glory in this. And, and, and I can't emphasize how much that this is literally absolutely unique to any other writing you'll find in the ancient world when it comes to war documents. And it's just factual. It's just factual. And then when God does get graphic later in the book of Judges, you know that you should be saying, that's not right. Because when God does get graphic about what they're doing to a Canaanite king, you realize that that's wrong. That's wrong. Because that then becomes glaringly obvious to you. So that is the end of the campaign. The campaign is pretty much over. 